Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where we are committed to offering voices of conscience key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I am the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. I am the moderator of today's program. We invite those of you who are listening to us on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. Information on upcoming town hall forums can be found online at ewestminster.com. .org. Thank you. I'd like to inform the radio audience that in our sanctuary audience today, there are over 250 high school students from Minneapolis area schools, and I'd like them just to have a moment on the radio if we could, please. Living proof. It's my pleasure to welcome the second speaker in our four-part spring series, At Home in America. Julian Bond has been a leader in the movement for civil rights and economic justice from his college days to his current chairmanship of the NAACP. While a student at Morehouse College in Atlanta, he helped found the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, which was active in protests and voter registration campaigns throughout the South. In 1965, he was elected to the Georgia Assembly, but denied his seat because of his statements opposing the war in Vietnam. Re-elected in 1966, he finally took office after the U.S. Supreme Court upheld his right to be seated in the state legislature, where he served for more than 20 years. During his legislative tenure, he sponsored more than 60 bills that became law. Mr. Bond is the author of the book, A Time to Speak, A Time to Act. He has narrated numerous documentaries, including the Academy Award-winning A Time for Justice and the critically acclaimed series Eyes on the Prize. Mr. Bond is Distinguished Professor in the School of Government at American University in Washington, D.C., and a Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Since 1998, he has been the Chairman of the Board of the NAACP, the oldest and largest civil rights organization in the United States. Today he will speak to us on civil rights then and now, the quest for meaningful equality. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Julian Bond. Thank you a great deal for that kind introduction. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your warm, warm welcome. It goes out saying it's a great, great pleasure for me to be here with you today. Um, it's not an exaggeration that I uh, feel a special kinship to Minneapolis and to Minnesota. My wife is a native of Minneapolis. Her father, who unfortunately passed away last summer, owns a still operating restaurant in St. Paul called the Copper Dome that pancakes any way you like them, uh, please stop by. It's also a uh, great, great pleasure to see that uh, Vice President Walter Mondale is with us. He is one of a long, uh, I wrote here unfortunately broken and I said you shouldn't say that. He's one of a long line of distinguished leaders. Minnesota has given the nation a strong, strong supporter of justice and, and decency in American life. And it's a great, great pleasure to have him here with us today.
This year, 2005, marks the 50th anniversary of the Montgomery bus boycott. That's the event that introduced Martin Luther King Jr. to the world. He was then only 26 years old. But at that early age and at that early stage of the boycott, he clearly understood its historical significance. Four days after Rosa Parks stood up for justice by sitting down, the bus boycott began. That evening at the first mass meeting, King declared, when the history books are written in the future, somebody will have to say, there lived a race of people, of black people, who had the moral courage to stand up for their rights. And thereby, they injected a new meaning into the veins of history and civilization. Well, King didn't exaggerate. Montgomery was the beginning of a mass movement that destroyed segregation and permanently changed our world. Thus, it's no coincidence that this year we also celebrate the 40th anniversary of the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So this year, as we commemorate these anniversaries, this year should be a time to examine our present in relation to our past. One thing we know is that the body politic continues to feed off race. It was Lyndon Johnson, not Karl Rove, who predicted the outcome of last fall's election. When he signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Johnson told his young aide, Bill Moyers, I think we delivered the South to the Republican Party for your lifetime and mine. That year, despite his national landslide, Johnson lost five Southern states, including four the Democrats had not lost in 84 years. Now the Republicanization of the former slave states is complete. We look back on these years between Montgomery and 1955 and the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 with some pride. Dr. King's first national address was at a 1957 prayer pilgrimage at the Lincoln Memorial. In 1963 alone, the year that King, fresh from the battlefields of Birmingham, told the nation about his dream at the March on Washington. There were more than 10,000 anti-segregation demonstrations. The result was the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the most sweeping civil rights legislation before or since and our democracy's finest hour. Now, of course, Martin Luther King was the most famous, the best known of all of the modern movement's personalities. But we ought to remember this was a people's movement. It produced leaders of its own. It relied not on the noted, but on the nameless, not on the famous, but on the faceless. It didn't wait for commands from afar to begin a campaign against injustice. It saw wrong and acted against it. It saw evil and it brought it down. The historian Claiborne Carson writes, although King played a crucial role in transforming a local boycott into a social justice movement of international significance, he was himself transformed by a movement he did not initiate. In Montgomery, the boycott owed its success to what this historian calls the self-reliant NAACP stalwarts who acted on their own before King could lead. Those were the days when women and men of all backgrounds worked together in the cause of civil rights. Those were the days when good music was popular and when popular music was good. Those were the days, those were the days when the president picked the Supreme Court and not the other way around. Those were the days, 
Those were the days. Those were the days when we had a war on poverty and not a war on the poor. Those were the days. Those were the days when patriotism was a reason for open-eyed disobedience, not an excuse for blind allegiance. Those were the days. Those were the days when the news media really was fair and balanced, and not just stenographers for the powerful. But friends, those were not the good old days. In those days, the law, the courts, the schools, almost every institution favored whites. This was white supremacy. Martin Luther King described it in 1962. He said then, when you've seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you've seen hayfield policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that's just been advertised on television, and see tears welling up in her eyes when she's told Fun Town is closed to colored children, and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky, and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people, when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who's asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you're harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you're a Negro, when you're living constantly on tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, when you're plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then, King said, then you would understand. And you would understand that then most Southern blacks could not vote. Most attended inadequate segregated schools if they went at all, many only for a few months each year. Most could not hope to gain an education beyond high school. Most worked as farmers or semi-skilled laborers. Few owned the land they farmed or even the homes in which they lived. When the Supreme Court announced in May of 1955 that the white South could make haste slowly in dismantling segregated schools, I was one year older than Emmett Till. His death three months after the second Brown decision in 1955 was much more immediate to me than the court's decision had been. We were nearly the same age when he was murdered in Money, Mississippi for whistling at a white woman. His death and the black newspapers that came into my home had created a great vulnerability and fear of all things Southern in my teenage mind. And when my parents announced in 1957 that we were moving to Atlanta, I was filled with dread. Emmett Till's death had terrified me. But in the fall of 1957, a group of black teenagers encouraged me to put that fear aside. These young people, the nine young women and men who integrated Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, set a high standard of grace and courage under fire as they dared the mobs who surrounded their school. Here, I thought, this is what I hope I can be if ever the chance comes my way. The chance to test and prove myself did come my way in 1960 as it came to thousands of other black high school and college students across the South. First through the sit-ins, then in freedom rides, then in the voter registration and political organizing drives in the rural South, 
we joined an old movement against white supremacy that had deep, strong roots. Brown versus Board of Education was that movement's greatest legal victory. It changed the legal status of black Americans and ironically made challenges to the established movement's narrow reliance on legal action more possible. As Richard Kluger has written, not until the Supreme Court acted in 1954 did the nation acknowledge it had been blaming the black man for what it had done to him. His sentence to second-class citizenship had been commuted. The quest for meaningful equality, equality in fact as well as in law, had begun. I believe in an integrated America, integrated jobs, homes, and schools. I believe in it enough to have spent most of my life in its elusive pursuit. I think it a legal, moral, political imperative for America, a matter of elemental justice, simple right waged against historical wrong. I not only have spent most of my life in this cause, but in 1947, when I was seven years old, I was plaintiff in a lawsuit in rural Pennsylvania against segregated schools. The case never came to trial. The school board had segregated schools by giving students achievement tests, which all blacks failed and all whites passed. But when the two big dumb sons of the local white political boss failed the test, they closed the black school and all of this village's children went to a one-room school together. Last year I visited Berea College in Kentucky, a school opened by abolitionists as an integrated school in 1855. It was closed by the Civil War but opened again in 1866 with 187 students, 96 blacks, 91 whites. It dared provide a rare commodity in the former slave states, an education that was open to all, to blacks, to whites, to women, and to men. One of these early students was my grandfather. Like many others, I'm the grandson of a slave. He was born in 1863 in Kentucky. Freedom didn't come for him until the 13th Amendment was ratified in 1865. He and his mother were property, like a horse or a chair. As a young girl, she'd been given away as a wedding present to a new bride. And when that bride became pregnant, her husband, that's my great-grandmother's owner and master, exercised his right to take his wife's slave as his mistress. That union produced two children, one of them my grandfather. At age 15, barely able to read or write, he hitched his tuition, a steer, to a rope and walked 100 miles across Kentucky to Berea College and the college took him in. Now he belonged to a transcendent generation of black Americans, a generation born into slavery, generation freed by the Civil War, a generation determined to make their way as free women and men. Martin Luther King belonged to another transcendent generation, a generation born into segregation, freed from racism's constraints by their own efforts, determined to make their way in freedom too. That the quest for meaningful equality, political and economic equity, remains unfulfilled today is no indictment of past efforts. Instead, it's testament to our challenge. When my grandfather graduated from Berea in 1892, the college asked him to deliver the commencement address. He said then, the pessimist from his corner looks out on the world of wickedness and sin and blinded by all that is good and hopeful in the condition and the progress of the human race bewails the present state of affairs and predicts woeful things for the future. In every cloud he beholds a destructive storm, in every flash of lightning an omen of evil, 
and in every shadow that falls across his path, a lurking foe. He forgets that the clouds also bring life and hope, that the lightning purifies the atmosphere, that shadow and darkness prepare for sunshine and growth, and that hardships and adversity nerve the race as the individual for greater efforts and grander victories. Greater efforts and grander victories. That was the promise made by the generation born in slavery more than 140 years ago. That was the promise made by the generation that won the Great World War for Democracy six decades ago. That was the promise made by those who brought democracy to America's darkest corners four decades ago, and that is the promise we must all seek to honor today. We meet on the heels of a presidential election, which among other things, gives credence to the old adage, the more things change, the more they remain the same. In the face of momentous events and changes in our national lives since 2000, voting patterns and results were remarkably unchanged from that election to this one. With the exception of three states whose razor-thin margins reversed, the electoral map in 2004 was identical to the map in 2000. Both sides mobilized their supporters, but the winners did it better, fostering division with precision. Yesterday's family values became today's moral values because there's some families they don't like. Vote totals show an America divided. Men versus women, whites versus non-whites, married versus unmarried, straight versus gay, old versus young, conservatives versus liberals, Protestants versus Jews, rural Americans versus urbanites. So we have a country roughly divided 50-50, but a government held entirely by one side. And each side believes the other leads down the road to perdition, giving new meaning to Woody Guthrie's famous refrain, this land is your land, this land is my land. I would, have, I would rather have had the election turn on issues of war and peace than on issues of race and sex. I always thought we had 10 commandments. What happened to the one against lying, stealing, and killing? Bill. Bill Clinton may have lied in the war between the sexes. George W. Bush lied about the war. And when Clinton lied, when Clinton lied, nobody died. First, weapons of mass destruction morphed into weapons of mass destruction program-related activities. Now the hunt for these weapons has come to an end. Just before Christmas, it was decided, that the interim report to Congress that contradicted nearly every post-war assertion made by top administration officials will be adopted as final this spring. But the war and the killing go on. When King spoke out against the war in Vietnam in 1965, he said he was revolted at the hypocrisy of America's claims for freedom overseas when blacks enjoyed few freedoms here. War abroad, he said, stole from Americans here at home. The pursuit of widened war, he said, has narrowed domestic welfare programs, making the poor, white and Negro, bear the heaviest burdens at the front and at home. How sadly true those words ring today. We know America's twin towers, freedom and justice, are still standing. It's our job to keep upright what others would weaken and destroy. America's strongest when she is just and fiercest when her people are free. Less than a week after the September 11th attacks, President Bush went to the Washington Islamic Center. Standing in his stocking feet, 
The president vowed to prevent hate crimes and discrimination against Arabs and Muslims in the wake of these attacks. A year later, on the first anniversary of the attacks, he renewed this vow. The goals the president stated, retaliation against terrorists abroad, promotion of tolerance here at home, are reminiscent of the double V campaign waged by blacks during World War II. Then it symbolized victory against fascism abroad, victory against racism here at home. Today, with the events of 9-11, we realize we've not yet achieved either victory, not yet against tyranny abroad, not yet against racism here at home. Just as this enemy, terrorism, is much more difficult to identify and punish, so is discrimination a more elusive target today. No more do signs read white and colored. The law now requires the voters booth and schoolhouse door to swing open for everyone. No longer are they closed to those whose skins are black. But despite impressive increases in the number of black people holding public office, despite our ability to sit, eat, ride, vote, go to school in places that used to bar black faces, in some important ways, non-white Americans face problems more difficult to attack now than in all the years that went before. In the NAACP, we believe these problems, old ones and new ones, have their root in race and racial discrimination. So when we're asked why the NAACP doesn't focus on social service, why we don't surrender to the great tutorial instinct so prominent among blacks in the middle class, the urge to instruct our less fortunate brothers and sisters and their children of the proper way of doing things, of saving, of learning, of speaking, we respond that we're an organization that fights racial discrimination. There are thousands of organizations in America which deliver social service, and properly so. The NAACP is one of the few which concentrates on social justice. We believe that racial discrimination is the prime reason why the gaps between white and black life chances remain so wide. We believe when our people have social justice, they won't need social service. If you think... If you think racial discrimination and white supremacy no longer reign in America, consider this. While America was deciding who would be president, Alabama voters had an amendment on their ballots which would have eliminated segregation as language from that state's constitution. It was defeated. This is the same state in which 40% of the voters, more than half a million people, voted against interracial marriage in 2002. This is also the same state that that year elected to its Supreme Court a man who drew his support from the pro-secession and pro-Confederacy Alabama League of the South and who handed out small Confederate flags. Of course, the League of the South is not confined to Alabama, and neither are Confederate flags or the sentiments and the values of the hands that hold them. The NAACP, whose board I chair, has always been nonpartisan, but that doesn't mean we're non-critical, and it doesn't mean we're non-composmentous. We don't oppose political parties, we never have. We oppose wrongful policies. While the election's losers, rightly, will be encouraged to examine their mistakes, the winners ought to ponder their failure to penetrate the black political consensus. The passage of the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, marked the beginning of the dependence of one of our political parties on the politics of racial division to win elections and to gain power. By playing the race card in election after election, they've appealed to that dark underside of American culture, to that minority of Americans who reject democracy and equality. They preach racial neutrality and they practice racial division. 
They celebrate Dr. King and they misuse his message. Their idea of reparations is to give war criminal Jefferson Davis a pardon. Their idea of a pristine environment is a parking lot before the lines are painted in. Their idea of equal rights is the American flag and the Confederate swastika flying side by side. Their idea of compassion is to ask the guest at the millionaire's banquet if they want an extra helping or a second dessert. They've tried to patch the leaky economy and every other domestic program, problem with duct tape and plastic sheets. They've written a new constitution for Iraq and now they're trying to rewrite the constitution here at home. They draw... They draw their most rabid supporters from the Taliban wing of American politics. And now, not only in Washington, but here in Minnesota, they want to write bigotry into the Constitution. They want to make one group of Americans. They want to make one group of Americans outsiders to our common heritage. They want to do what we have never done before, to amend the Constitution to create a group of second-class citizens. The Constitution is the last hope of freedom. It can't become a carrier of prejudice and intolerance. And and, and what about the other party? Too often they're not in opposition, they're an amen corner. While one party has been whistling Dixie, the other's been whistling in the dark. With some exceptions, with some exceptions, they've been absent without leave from this battle for American soul. When one party is shameless, the other can't afford to be spineless. These economic imbalances, these economic imbalances not only mean difficult times for many, they also undermine democratic values. The danger is that plutocracy will prevail over democracy, that the free market will rule over the free citizen. The reason for the current deficit and the vanished surplus can be placed squarely on the tax giveaways to the rich. They constitute a massive transfer of the cost of government further and further down the income scale. To make up for just the initial tax cuts, we'd have to cut spending by $5 billion five days a week for over a year. That was the whole point. To further enrich the already wealthy, to starve the government, making it unable to meet human needs, signing a death warrant for social programs for decades yet to come. We have a president who talks like a populist, and governs for the privileged. We were promised compassionate conservatism. Instead, we got crony capitalism. We had an attorney general who was a cross between J. Edgar Hoover and Jerry Falwell. Now, now, now we have an attorney general who when asked at his confirmation hearing whether American soldiers could legally engage in torture under any circumstances, replied, I want to get back to you on that. <laughs> Bernard Carrick had to step aside as Bush's nominee to head Homeland Security because he employed a foreigner, but Gonzalez had them tortured. In this administration, blunders are rewarded with promotions or medal. And then there's Congress. The House leadership has never seen an ethics rule it liked. We have a Senate majority leader who voted consistently against labor rights, against civil rights, against women's rights, and he's the one who replaced the bad guy. Only, only one senator, Russell Feingold of Wisconsin, voted against the first hastily prepared and ill-considered terrorism measure proposed after September 11th. Senator Feingold explained his vote this way. 
He said, if we lived in a country that allowed the police to search our home at any time for any reason, if we lived in a country that allowed the government to open your mail to eavesdrop on your phone conversations or to intercept your email communications, if we lived in a country that allowed the government to hold people indefinitely in jail based on what they write or think, or based on mere suspicion that they're up to no good, then the government would no doubt discover and arrest more terrorists. But that probably would not be a country in which we would want to live. Nor do we want to live in a country that permits infiltration and surveillance of religious and political organizations. Yet the FBI guidelines proposed by J. Edgar Ashcroft do just that. <laughs> just, as we, just as we remember J. Edgar Hoover, we remember his counterintelligence program. It was called COINTELPRO. And whose intelligence did they want to counter? In a program called Racial Matters, they tried to disrupt the civil rights movement. They tried to smear Dr. King. They not only wanted him discredited, they wanted him dead. They threatened him with the release of damaging information if he didn't take his own life. We thought we'd put a stop to Hoover's programs of spies and lies in the 1970s after these abuses were exposed. Now, under the guise of fighting terrorism, the FBI is going back to spying on law-abiding citizens. In the summer of 1918, on the eve of America's entry into World War I, one of the founders of the NAACP, W.E.B. Du Bois, urged black Americans to forget our special grievances, close ranks shoulder to shoulder with our fellow citizens and the allied nations that are fighting for democracy. The criticism he faced then was immediate and loud. He quickly reversed his position, and he realized then, as we must now, that calls for a retreat from our rights are always wrong. He understood then, as we must now, that when wars are fought to claim to save democracy, the first casualty is usually democracy itself. That's why we must be vigilant against the steady erosion of American values and the basic rights we hold dear. We ought to remember the words of President Theodore Roosevelt, who said in 1918, to announce there must be no criticism of the president or to stand by the president right or wrong is not only unpatriotic and servile, but it is morally treasonous to the American public. And, and we ought to remember the words of Ohio Senator Robert Taft. And I never thought I'd be quoting Robert Taft. <laughs> but two weeks after Pearl Harbor was bombed, he said, I believe there can be no doubt that criticism in time of war is essential to the maintenance of any kind of democratic government. The FBI, the CIA kept files on me in the 1960s they may be keeping files on me today. I know the Internal Revenue Service is, but while they were watching and following and photographing and wiretapping those of us working nonviolently in the freedom movement, a wave of white terror was sweeping across the South without challenge. It has taken 40 years and more to bring a pitiful few of those terrorists to the bar of justice. And it's taken 40 years and more to put in place a framework of civil rights enforcement now threatened on several fronts. The administration's judicial nominees are hostile to the basic principles of civil rights law and civil rights enforcement. They oppose the core constitutional principle of one person, one vote. They've supported federal funding for racially discriminatory schools. They've tried to rewrite anti-discrimination laws from the bench. Organizations dedicated to overturning the gains of the civil rights movement are now dictating public policy. For more than a decade, they've waged an ideological war against moderation in the federal judiciary, and then they squeal the loudest when the extremists they support are rejected. They want to make any government consideration of race illegal, and thereby do away with our rights and much of the legacy of the civil rights movement. 
They don't want to count race, they really want a color-free America, and they think they'll get there by not counting race. But as long as race counts, we've got to count race. Affirmative action, <laughs> affirmative, affirmative action was created to fight what Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor called the unhappy persistence of both the practice and the lingering effects of racial discrimination. Affirmative action has been under attack not because it has failed, but because it has succeeded. It created the sizable middle class that now constitutes one-third of all black Americans. In the late 1960s, the wages of black women in the textile industry tripled. From 1970 to 1990, the number of black police officers, lawyers, and doctors doubled. Black electricians and college students tripled. Black bank tellers more than quadrupled. The opponents keep telling us that affirmative action carries some kind of stigma which attaches to all blacks as if we'd never felt a stigma in the days before the words affirmative action were ever spoken. Why don't they ever make this argument about the millions of whites who got into Harvard or Yale because dad was an alumnus? Or, or what about those who got a good job because dad was president of the company or president of the United States? You never. You, you never see them walking around with their heads held low, moaning that everybody in the executive washroom is whispering about how they got their jobs. Most of our elite professions in America have long been the near exclusive preserve of white men. I seriously doubt if a single one of these men is suffering low self-esteem because he knows, everyone knows, that his race and gender helped him win his job. Without affirmative action, both white collars and blue collars around black necks would shrink with a huge depressive effect on black income, education, home ownership, and life chances. President Bush chose Dr. King's birthday last year to unilaterally elevate Judge Charles Pickering to the federal bench, Pickering's hostility to civil rights and leniency to cross burners notwithstanding. He chose Dr. King's birthday the year before to announce that even though he admits society continues to do something special against minorities, his administration would not do something special for him, and he opposed the University of Michigan's efforts to promote diversity among its student body. That is so ironic. <clears throat> After all, the Bush family has enjoyed generations of preferences at Yale University, preferences for the first daughter, preferences for her father before him, preferences for his father before him. The administration likes to use outgoing Secretary of State Colin Powell, incoming Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, as human shields against any criticism of their record on civil rights. After all they're proud of boasting, this administration is more diverse than any in history, except for the one just before it. But the day, <coughs> but the, day the administration filed a brief in the Michigan cases, Ms. Rice issued a rare statement on a domestic issue saying it's appropriate to use race as one factor among others in achieving a diverse student body. And she's acknowledged that affirmative action was responsible for her employment at Stanford University. The Civil War that freed my grandfather was fought over whether blacks and whites shared a common humanity. Less than 10 years after it ended, the nation chose sides with the losers and agreed to continue black repression for almost 100 years. 246 years of slavery, followed by 100 years of state-sanctioned discrimination, reinforced by public and private terror, ending only after a protracted struggle in 1965. Thus, it has been a short 40 years that all black Americans have been allowed to exercise the full rights of citizens. 
40 years since legal segregation was ended nationwide. Only 40 years since the right to register and vote was universally guaranteed. Only 40 years since the protections of the law and constitution were officially extended to all. And now, some are telling us those 40 years have been enough. To believe that is the victory of hope over experience. To believe that is the victory of self-delusion over common sense. The successful strategies of the modern movement were litigation, organization, mobilization, and coalition, all aimed at creating a national constituency of civil rights. Sometimes the simplest everyday acts, sitting at a lunch counter, going to a new school, applying for a marriage license, can have unforeseen results. It can change the universe. It can challenge the way we think and act. That movement marched and picketed and protested against state-sanctioned segregation, and it brought that system crashing to its knees. Today's times require no less, and in fact insist on more. Now we find ourselves refighting old battles we thought we'd already won, facing new problems we've barely begun to acknowledge, we ought to take heart. If there's more to be done, we have more to do it with, much more than those who came before us and who brought us along this far. We have a history of aggressive self-help and volunteerism as a nation, in church and civic club and neighborhood association, providing scholarships, helping the needy, promoting social service. But volunteering for social service alone does little to change the status quo. Creating change requires challenging power. It's never enough just to ignore evil. It's never enough just to do good. It's never enough just to feed the hungry and house the homeless as commendable as these deeds are. It may be helpful to think about our challenge in this way. Two men are sitting by a river and to their surprise, they see a baby come floating by. They jump in and save the child and to their surprise, another baby comes down the stream. They jump in the water a second time and save that child and to their horror, a third baby comes down the stream. One of the men jumps in the water a third time and the other man begins to run upstream. Come back, says the man in the water, we've got to save this child. You save it, says the running man. I'm gonna find out who's throwing babies in the water and I'm gonna make him stop. Now. I just heard, I, I recently heard Professor Lonnie Guineer say that racial minorities are like the canaries, that miners used to carry to warn them when the underground air was becoming too toxic to breathe. But too many people today want to put gas masks on the canaries instead of taking the poison out of the air. Too many people want to put life preservers on the babies instead of stopping them from being thrown in a dangerous, treacherous flood. We have a long and honorable tradition of social justice in this country. It still sends forth the message that when we act together, we can overcome. The election doesn't change the task before us. If it makes it more difficult, it also makes it more imperative. Our agenda for this new century must include continuing to litigate, to organize, to mobilize, forming coalitions of the caring and concern, joining ranks against the comfortable, the callous, and the smug, fighting discrimination wherever it raises its ugly head, in the halls of government, in corporate suites, or in the streets, ensuring our children in inner city and suburban and rural schools receive the best education, an education that prepares them for the century just begun. We must provide health care, protect social security, and promote peace. Instead of salvaging social security, they want to savage it, turning a right into a risk and a guarantee into a gamble. And just on Wednesday of last week, the House voted to gut the protections against discriminatory hiring by faith-based recipients of federal funds. If the House prevails, the federal government will do an abrupt about-face, reversing course, 
shifting from the victim's protector to the discriminator's sponsor. This is much more than a slippery slope. This is a hellacious hill. There's much more, none of it easy work. We've never wished our way to freedom. Instead, we've always worked our way. In the NAACP, we believe colored people come in all colors. Anyone who shares our values is more than welcome. Racial justice, economic equality, world peace, these were the themes that occupied Dr. King's life. They ought to occupy ours today. We know our lives, our world are changing. We don't know by how much even yet, but we know we have a job to do at home as much as abroad. When I first started working more than four decades ago, there were five workers paying in the retirement system for every retiree. Of course, there's no way I can know who my five were, but there's a good chance their names would be Carl, Ralph, Bob, Steve, and Bill. When I retire, there are going to be three workers paying in the system for every retiree. There's a good chance their names will be Tamika, Maria, and Jose. And I'm here to tell you that you'd better make sure that Tamika, Maria, and Jose have the best schools, the best health care, the best jobs, and the strongest protections against discrimination they can. Thank you. Thank you, Julian Bond. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall, downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, minister here at Westminster and moderator of the forum. Our guest is civil rights leader and chairman of the NAACP, Julian Bond. While the ushers collect questions from the audience at Westminster, I would like to thank the many generous individuals and foundations who support our mission to promote public discourse on the critical issues of our time. Mr. Bond, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. You referred to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voter right, Voting Rights Act of 65. What legislative steps are necessary in Washington these days to advance the civil rights agenda? There are a couple of uh, measures that need to be considered and, and adopted. Uh, one of the not immediately pressing, but soon to be pressing, is the renewal of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 uh, had time limits on it. It's been extended twice. It will expire, I believe, in 2006 or 2007 and needs to be extended once again. The bad news is that when the Congressional Black Caucus met with President Bush two weeks ago and Congressman Jesse Jackson of Illinois asked him what he was going to do about renewing the Voting Rights Act, he said, I'm not familiar with that. The good news, good news is that we believe he is now familiar with it and that there's encouraging signs from both sides of the aisle that there'll be a serious attempt to renew the act. Um, part of renewing the act will entail writing into law corrective legislation to correct some horrendous court decisions that have uh, weakened, seriously weakened the law over the last several years. So that's about a two year, three year in advance uh, prospect that, that even now people are worried about and, and trying to organize about. And then there are all kinds of s smaller corrections and, and improvements that need to be made on the existing uh, body of law in the United States. 
but one thing that badly needs to be done is that the enforcement machinery needs to be more fully funded, needs to be much more aggressive. There's a disturbing study just at the beginning of this year that said that despite no decrease in the level of complaints, there had been a remarkable decrease in the level of enforcement actions taken over the previous three years, uh, previous four years, I'm sorry. And, and that doesn't bode well for people who are grieved, who feel that because of their race or their gender or their age, they've been the victims of discrimination, doesn't promise them any hope that uh, whatever problem they're facing would be remedied or at least considered. Uh, so those, those are the main things that need to be done over the next uh, two or three legislative sessions. A question from Catherine, who's 12 years old at Southside School. What went through your mind when you were at a sit-in? I was uh, terrified. I went into the uh, lunchroom of the Atlanta City Hall cafeteria. This is the first time I'd ever done this, and I was leading a group of other people. The first thing we saw was the black women behind the steam tables, like a regular cafeteria, you know, with the steam tables, and you pick up the food. And they looked at us with this kind of fear and admiration. Fear because they knew if they served us, these black people in this white-only place that they might lose their jobs. But admiration because they'd read in the papers about this happening in other places and now it had come to Atlanta and uh, so they were happy to see us. So they did serve us and we went along the steam tables with our trays and I was first in line. I came to the cashier who was a southerner and like most southerners, tremendously polite. And she said, I'm awfully sorry, this is for City Hall employees only. And I said, you've got a big sign out front that says City Hall Cafeteria, the public is welcome. She said, we don't mean it. I, I, I said, I said, uh, I said, we'll stand here until you do. And uh, she, she called the police and the police came and took us away. But I was, frankly, I was terrified. I was frightened, scared. You made a passing reference in your remarks to reparation. Do you have any further comments on that movement? No, just to say very, very quickly that the, the movement for reparations is an old, old movement. It, it began shortly after the conclusion of the Civil War, and it was an attempt to get some compensation for these hundreds of years of unpaid labor which helped to build the United States, helped to make the United States an attractive place for others to come to, to create fortunes of their own. So this is an old, old idea. It's risen and fallen, risen and fallen over years. I haven't ever met anyone who's suggesting that Bill Cosby's children ought to be paid millions of dollars simply because of the color of their skin. But I have met many, many people who believe that some kind of general societal grant to distressed communities to help those communities build schools or community centers or help them to create a, a more promising infrastructure, that's what I think most of the reparations debate is all about. And Congressman Conyers has introduced a bill in the Congress every year for the past several years. The good news is that every year it has more and more sponsors. It has nowhere near enough sponsors to be seriously considered. Remembering your own uh, act activism against the war in Vietnam, why do you feel Americans, both black and white, have not protested the war in Iraq with the same fervor as earlier protests? Well. I can remember a few years ago, at, as the war was about to begin, enormous protests and demonstrations, uh, some of which I participated in, uh, of hundreds, literally millions of people in the streets of American cities and, and cities around the world in opposition to the war. I think part of what's happened is that the movement uh, became so dispirited when the war seemed to figure so sm in such a small way 
in the consideration of voters who went to the polls uh, last year that it seemed not to be a major issue with many people. At least uh, they didn't seem to um, be distressed about what is a, a days after day after day after day after day of distressing news and the news that one effect of the war has to been to recruit even more terrorists. So I, I think there's some dispiritedness among the people in the anti-war movement, uh, but I imagine that they'll regain heart and pick up again. Um, so I think it also one, one big difference is that we don't have a draft and the draft was a powerful impetus to protesting against the war. I'd like to see the draft come back this time as an equal opportunity draft, I believe young women ought to have the same right to defend uh, their country as young men do, and that it shouldn't allow any kind of deferments, uh, except for physical disability or something. Um, so I'd like to see the draft come back, because I think one thing eliminating the draft did was it eliminated the connection we had between the ordinary citizen and the fighting men and women, because as you know from watching Fahrenheit 9-11, I think only two members of Congress have children who are in the military right now, and that's, that's distressing. It, this ought to be a burden that we all share equally. With so many youth present today at the forum, do you have any words of wisdom or guidance for our next generation in their quest for what you have called meaningful equality? Well, I think young people, young people have to do several things. One, because you're in school, you have to do that first because that ought to be your main preoccupation right now, is being the best student you can, learning as much as you can, preparing yourself for college after school if that's an option for you, or some other kind of, of, of training when you leave high school, uh, being the best possible student you possibly can. And taking advantage of this time when you're learning things to make sure you learn about the things you don't know anything about because that's just the beauty of an education, to discover things that you had no idea about, to be introduced to different kinds of people who are different from you, who live in different ways, who think dif in different ways, but who essentially are the same as you are. And I hope while doing all that, and that's job number one, that you also find some time to help people less fortunate than you. And there are literally hundreds of thousands of ways in which to do that, tutoring children in a, in a school who are having trouble with subjects that you're very good at, uh, math and science, um, helping a neighborhood clean itself up, uh, helping people uh, become citizens, register to vote, uh, teaching them about the issues in the election. There's just an endless list of things you can do and things you ought to do because you will find as you do these things that the benefit to you is greater than the benefit to the people you help. Thank you, Julian Bond, for an incisive look at the history and impact of racial discrimination in our country. We're very appreciative of your remarks today.